Several years ago, I had an opportunity to um, be in one of those small groups that, uh, that missionaries come and they organize so that they can share their ministry with you. There's a, a guy who is uh, there and his job was in North India. He was uh, a principal of a training school. And so he had come along. I'd been invited by a friend and he came along to try to explain to us what it was like to do ministry in, in North India. He'd also been a pastor of a church. He was trying to train other pastors. Um, to give us an idea of, of the dangers of it, uh, he, he told us what he would usually do when he would go up into the villages of North India to go proclaim the gospel there. He would line every one of his children up and his wife would be on the end. And he would go one by one down the line and he would tell each one of the children <clears throat> what he wanted them to know in case he died. Apparently, there was a really good chance that he, that he would die. He was going into places with militant Hindus, and uh, often they would come and they'd sit in the front of the church that he was speaking at, and they would often be armed, and they would sit there and mouth things to him while he was preaching. Sometimes they'd interrupt the service. Uh, they were just waiting for him to say something or do something that was really outside the bounds of what they expected or wanted. So he would line these kids up and he'd explain to each one of them, okay, you need to love your mother. You need to take care of uh, your brothers and sisters. You need to, you know, you're the next man of the house. And then the next one that you need to grow up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. <laughs> he'd go all the way down to his wife and he'd hug her and say, you know, I've always loved you. So each time he would go out, he would have this moment where he would share with them what they, he needed them to know. I've thought about that in the last uh, few weeks in particular. As you know, last week uh, I started a sermon series called Parting Shots. It's only two weeks long because I only had at that point two weeks left. Last week we talked about what the Apostle Paul said to the Ephesian elders on the last uh, time that they ever saw him. He stopped on, uh, on the beach basically or at the dock in a town called Miletus and he called the Ephesian elders to him and then he told them what they needed to be aware of, right? Be Beware that there are savage wolves that are come in and they're going to try to attack your, the flock. So watch yourselves, watch the flock of God. And he now hands them over, he said at the end, uh, to the care of Christ, to the care of God and, and his word. I shared with you a whole bunch of stuff about that because it was very near and dear to my heart. But I, I wanted to do that one before this one. And I wanted to do this one last because I, I want to look at today the last words of Jesus to his disciples. I'm sure it's a passage that you know well. I'm sure it's a passage that maybe you studied before, but I wanted to take a, a closer look at it. What you have here is in Matthew chapter 28, uh, verses 16 to 20, you have Jesus assembling his uh, disciples, 11 of them, right? Because Judas has gone. Jesus has resurrected from the dead. He says to uh, the women who see him at, at the tomb, uh, tell the disciples that I want to go and meet them. In Galilee, on a mountain that they had prearranged for him to meet at. And uh, he, he's there. He appears before them. And, and honestly, whenever I picture this scene, I picture it as like a military general giving his commands to, to the team for how it is that they're going to now go forward into the battle. He lines them up and he says to them these words. The eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus was told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always. To the very end of the age. So between now and the end of the age, says Jesus, this is the mission. This is the plan. The reason that you are left here on earth, the reason that when you come to faith in Jesus, you are not immediately sucked up into heaven, is because of this mission. You are left here to do this work. What is it? There's a lot of words there, but when you break it down, the main idea is we are called to make disciples. You ever done sentence diagramming when you were a little guy or a little girl and you were in school? You remember that? Maybe they've given up on that now. You have to identify the main verb and then you have to identify the modifying clauses to it. This passage is actually really easy to understand and study because it has a main verb, make disciples, and then it has modifying phrases. Uh, make disciples. How? Well, going. Uh, baptizing and teaching. And ultimately, you should do it because Jesus has all authority and he's going to go with you. So have no fear. So those are the f- you know, four little things that I want to point out here. Go, baptize, teach, have no fear. So here, let's look at the first of those. How do you make a disciple? Well, you go. It's the first thing. You go. Verse 18. I want to read it again. Uh, The 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. It's interesting when they show up there in Galilee, right? They go and tell, they tell him, uh, Jesus tells him, hey, meet me in Galilee. He could have done this in Jerusalem, right? He could have stayed around in Jerusalem, but he goes to Galilee because it is called in those days, Galilee of the Gentiles. And Galilee of the Gentiles was, as the name says, it's a place where the nations, the Gentiles were more numerous than the Jews. Uh, So it was a very mixed, racially mixed area. So Jesus goes out to the Galilee of the Gentiles. And then his his command for them is, look, we're going to go make disciples of all nations. We're going to go make disciples of Jews and Gentiles. A few years ago, I was asked to be a part of a conference for church planting. And the conference was hosted uh, in an area where there were very, very few church plants. It was in Atlantic Canada. Uh, Nova Scotia, we flew all the way across the country, uh, had no idea that there was way more country to the east <laughs> than, than from like Montreal. We kept flying and flying and flying and eventually ended in Atlantic Canada. I remember saying to one of the guys who was with me, man, why are we going so far away to have this conference where when everybody else, every other person who's involved in it is like lives in BC or Alberta or... But then when we got there, one of the first things they said was, we wanted to have the conference in Atlantic Canada so that you would see what's required to plant churches in Atlantic Canada. In other words, we're going to put the location of the conference, of the meeting, where there need to be locations of the mission that we're going to talk about at the meeting. 
And that's what Jesus has done here. He's basically said, look, I, the mission is going to be out to everybody. It's going to be out to Jews and it's going to be out to Gentiles. So instead of having this meeting in Jerusalem, let's go to Galilee of the Gentiles. And we're going to go up on a mountaintop, we're going to survey the whole area, and I'm going to tell you what the mission is. See, guys, you can imagine them sitting on the top of this mountain. See, guys, see all this? See all the people who live all through these areas? That, that's the mission. Go to all the nations. But before I talk about the all nations, no, notice that he says go. Okay, sometimes we just run, run by that a little bit. Yeah, of course they're going to go. Um, this is the first step in how you make a disciple. I said that, you know, remember there's modifying clauses beneath it. So make disciples. The first modifying clause is going. So how do you do it? You, you go. Now, notice uh, that going requires, this is a stupid thing to say, but going requires you to leave where you are and arrive or head toward a different place. If you're at the beginning of a race and they have the gun there and they say, ready, set, go. Remember the guy in Survivor with his dumb hands, you know, ready, set, go. I don't know why they came up with that, but that, that's the way he did it. And if they just sat there at go, you would think, man, I don't think you quite understand the nature of, of go. That's, of course, a, a dumb thing to say, but here's why I say it. It has been the practice of lots and lots of Christians throughout the ages to follow Jesus and to focus significantly on the relationships they have with one another as opposed to going. I mean, you can be so involved in the Christian church. You can be so involved with other Christians that you never, ever know other believers. Man, as a pastor, I know this better than than most, right? You can go to the, the, the community group. You can go uh, to the weekend service. You can be involved in serving in the church. You can go to Christian school. You can Christian and Christian and Christian and Christian. Listen, I'm not putting down the need for a Christian community or the need for supporting friends who believe the same thing in a culture that is hostile to that. It is so important. But the call the reason we've been left here is to go. So um, every once in a while, I really like to uh, draw this picture that I've done for years. So it's, it's, it's not new to you. I'm sure if you've been around Northview at all, you, you'll remember it. I call it my little spider diagram. What I do is I usually put a little cross or I, a little house a little church, and I say, all right, so here, here's the plan of God. So Jesus rises from the dead, and he calls these disciples together, and he says, okay, here's what we're going to do. I want you, Christians, right, symboled by the cross, and I want you to, to go, and so I put little legs out, right, to go out from this group. I want you to scatter now, in a minute, you're going to learn that you, teaching is also part of this. So, so there's an assumption that you're going to gather for the teaching of the word, teaching you to obey all that, that he commanded. And then there's the scattering, the going. This is supposed to be the breathing of a Christian. We, we gather and, and we scatter. We gather 
and then, and then we scatter, and we scatter into all kinds of places. We scatter into our work, we scatter into our schools, we scatter, scatter into, our, into our play fields, whether it's a baseball diamond or a basketball court or a hockey arena. We scatter into perhaps the next town over. We scatter and scatter and scatter. Now, the question that you've asked is, okay, so is there a limit to how far we should scatter? And the answer to the question actually is in the phrase, make disciples, you noticed it, of all nations. Of all nations. Nations, there's no limit to where we need to go. Wherever there are people, in other words, there are potential disciples. And like I said, the church has always had a difficulty with this, right? We, we naturally gather together. We naturally want to be with one another, people who see the world the same way we did. In fact, in the early part of, um, of the church, one of the earliest things that happened in the book of Acts... The first chapter of the book of Acts, you get the, a similar command from Jesus saying to the disciples, all right, here's what's going to happen, he says in Acts 1a. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you, you will be my witnesses. Notice where though. You'll, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And you can see the kind of growing out from that. In Jerusalem, the city, which is predominantly Jewish, in Judea, which is predominantly Jewish, although there's some Gentiles there, to Samaria, who are kind of like the half-breed folks that the Jews didn't really like. So you're going to have to go to those people. Remember when Jesus goes up, the woman at the well, she's a Samaritan woman. You're going to have to go to them. And then beyond them, to everywhere, the ends of the earth. So the, the goal of the mission is to start here to scatter, you're going to gather, but you're going to scatter, and then you're going to scatter, and then you're going to scatter further. But the early church did not do that. They did what we tend to do. Gathered daily, in fact, in the temple courts. And then they would scatter to people they knew. They scattered, but in Jerusalem largely. Right? A little bit in Judea, but mostly in Jerusalem. There were lots of people in Jerusalem. They were Jewish people. They had the same background. It was easier to talk to them, right? Cultural differences were not a barrier. And so they stayed and they stayed and they stayed all the way through until Acts chapter 8. So Acts 1-8 gives the mission and Acts 8-1 shows what happens when the people limited the mission to just in Jerusalem. Acts 8-1 says on that day, this is after Stephen who gives this grand sermon, he's stoned to death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were, here's the word, scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. God, in other words, through persecution, kind of had to push them out. They were so committed to being in what was comfortable, understandably so, but he had to push them out. He had to push them out to the next level of, of the mission. We all do this. We all want to gather together. But God's call is further than that. And I remember one of the first times I'd ever been to a like bona fide mission 
uh, setting, like when I say mission, bona fide missions, the one that comes into your mind when you're a kid, right? The missionaries come and they visit and they show you the slides, you know, and one sideways and another one slides. Back in my day, they had the actual slide projector, right? And they were always, you know, fuzzy and you couldn't see a lot. People dressed a little bit weird when they were missionaries. The first time I'd ever gone to actually a location where they took those pictures was when I led a, a mission team to Guatemala. And one of the places that we went was to this village that was on the side of a volcano. And we, we traveled probably three hours on roads that were not roads. I mean, they had their potholes and divots all over the place, back and forth up the mountainside. We get to this little village. There are, in the village, there's several streets, but there's one main street coming right down the middle. Along the main street, there are like six poles that have you know, electrical wires. I learned later that in order to have electricity in your house, you have to have a pole outside your house, and there are only six people in the town who could afford a pole. One of those that could afford the pole and needed it was the missionary family because they were trying to translate the Bible with Wycliffe, Bible translators in this town. One of the most remarkable aspects of the town was the ditch that ran down the main street. It was a sewer, and it ran straight. I mean, it had everything in it. And it dragged the trash, feces, like it had everything in it. And it ran right down the middle of the street. It's a big ditch. We kept making jokes with the kids. I'm going to throw you in there, right? You listen to me. We're going to. We walked into this missionary's house. We stood at the doorway. They had a, they had a refrigerator. I remember they had like two bunk beds, a two room little spot, refrigerator, two bunk beds, a sink, and in the other room was a desk with one light bulb. The pole outside fed the refrigerator and the light bulb and the computer that they used to translate the Bible. I remember talking to the couple who were there. And, you know, I was so overwhelmed, but I said, well, well how did you get here? <laughs> like, where are you from? You know, in my mind, I'm thinking, surely you, maybe you grew up in Guatemala and you're accustomed to this. They said, oh, Beaverton, Oregon. Now, I've been to Beaverton. It's like the wealthier spot in Portland. Yeah, we grew up in the suburbs, large house, family, accountant, parents, whatever. How did you get here? Well, the Lord led us through a different series, but eventually we just could not ignore the call of Christ to scatter into the places where he was not known. Now, look, you and I are probably not going to end up doing that. But that is the impulse that this passage is trying to get across, right? This, this, this idea of, of going. And it happens in faraway places like that. And it happens in nearer places. And, and in each case, it always requires crossing of boundaries and difficulties. It's not easy to get up to the side of the volcano. It is not easy to live in a town that has a sewer, sewage ditch going down the middle of it. You leave behind friends and family and all sorts of things. You leave behind a lot when you go. But it's not just going that distance. It's also going just nearby. You leave behind things. Unless you're going to talk to people who are only like you, Unless you're going to spend time with people who are only like you, it's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you, you know, looking cool. Because when you cross cultural boundaries, it's difficult. It really is. It's really, really difficult. When I was a youth pastor years ago in the eastern Washington state, uh, 
I went to this town uh, called Hay. It's hard to call it a town. It's an area full of farms. Hay, Washington. Isn't that a great name? Uh, the na it was named probably after what was on the ground. There was hay everywhere. I had to go out there because my, my, the, pa the pastor of a church, the lead pastor of the church, told me, the youth pastor, listen, there's a girl out there who is hesitating to come to church. She's in grade 10. You need to drive out there, and you need to find her and invite her to church. So I'm driving, I don't know anything, I'm from the suburbs, I'm driving out there, I went with my wife because I was freaked out of my mind to do this, I'm driving out there, we, I, I finally find their house, it took forever, I get out of the car, I walk down the driveway and there's this girl in like cowboy clothes and she's all dirty and she's, she looks at me and I said, are you, and I said her name and she said, yes, and she was really worried because she thought I was, you know, going to sell her something, and I said, well, I'm just, I'm the youth pastor or whatever. She looked like at me like I was an idiot. She never came to our church, and I felt so stupid. I don't like feeling stupid. I don't like being rejected, and yet that is part of the mission. You go. Way easier to stay at home. It's way easier to hang out with the people who already buy this. It's way easier for us to connect with people who share our heart for Jesus. But the call is to go. You make disciples first by going. When I was at a Dallas Theological Seminary Mission Fest, so they had this big, they had a bunch of booths in a large room, if you've ever been to one of these places, and all these people from all over the world came and they were trying to recruit seminary students to come be part of their mission. On a board, during the Mission Fest, were percentages, you know, of how many people from Dallas Seminary stay in the Dallas-Fort Worth area versus how many go into the United States and how many go internationally. Those who stay in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, I think, was something like 92%, something like that. Those who go in the rest of the United States was about 7%. And 1% of the people at Dallas Seminary at that time, went outside Dallas and the United States to engage in God's mission. These are the, the most trained, best leaders I knew, and 1% of them was going outside of the United States. So I told God then and there, Lord, I will go. I'll go where you want me to go. And it has been hard. It's been hard. We, New Zealand's a lovely place, but you know, you leave your family behind, you sell all your stuff, you have to make new friends, you leave it again, come back, you're rejected by a bunch of churches, you go back to New Zealand again, you move to another part of the, town, of the area, you don't know anybody except one guy maybe, it takes another several years, you feel the call of God to come back to North America, you end up in Canada and Abbotsford, British Columbia. I didn't know anybody in Abbotsford, British Columbia. Like there's a cost to each one of those things. And so I head to Chicago now. And the impulse, my point here is that the impulse in each one of those moves is the fact that God has called us to go. Not just next door, certainly next door, but to go to the ends of the earth to make disciples of all nations. So how do you make disciples? First, you go. Second, uh, I'm going to join together the baptize and teach parts, right? Both are commands, but you, then you baptize and teach them. 
Verse 18 again, Jesus came to them, said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. You notice the line there. Okay, so after you go, make disciples by going and then baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay, what is baptism? I know that in the church we talk about it normally. We don't make, we don't usually explain it a whole lot. It's just sort of the thing you do. So if you're new to the church or maybe you've always wondered, why in the world are they doing the baptism? Let me, let me just try to give you an idea in modern terms of what it's, what it's trying to do. Okay, so I had a friend, he goes into a fraternity uh, years ago when I was in college. He goes into a fraternity and I saw him on campus a few days later and he had a patch over his, his arm. He had like a, a gauze, right? Medical gauze over his arm. And he reached out to shake my hand. Remember when we used to shake hands? He reached out to shake my hand and I noticed the gauze. I said, what, what's on your arm? And he said, oh, 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 it's, it's nothing. And I said, well, it's nothing. Did you hurt yourself? Did you just, when we went to high school together, we were good friends in high school. What'd you do? He said, well, I, I'm not really supposed to show you. And I said, oh my gosh, really? You're not supposed to show me? He said, yeah, it's part of my fraternity thing. Okay, well, soon everyone's going to see it because it's on your arm, so why don't you show me now? And so he peeled it back, and there was a tattoo there. He had been tattooed on his arm, and it had some sign. I had no idea what the sign was. He said, this is, what, this is the initiation right to be part of my seminary. By getting this tattoo, I am signaling to my brothers, fraternity brothers, that I am with them, that I am part of them, that I've been... I've, I've been initiated into the Sigma Chi Epsilon Alpha Betas or whatever. Baptism is an initiation rite. It is a, a, a tattoo. But, you know, not with pen and, you know, ink. and It, it is a symbol of what it looks like to be joined into whatever it is you're being baptized into. And you can see the imagery, right? When you get baptized, you get immersed. You take the person, they go under the water. So what they used to be is gone away. They go under the water and they come back out. And when they come back out, they are a new person tied to the thing that they were baptized into, right? So when we go out, we baptize people. We go and then we baptize them. We baptize them into, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are baptizing them into the Trinitarian God. They are now belonging to him. It's an initiation rite. And you can hear it, hear it in the word, initiation, right? It's a beginning. You initiate something, that's what it means. You begin it. What's weird is that in the church for years and years, one of the things that we've done is we've taken baptism, the initiation, the beginning, and we've made it the goal. So if you go to a baptism service, there are tears. People, it's amazing. They're fantastic, right? There are tears and people are thrilled and they clap when you come out of the water and there's a barbecue sometimes. It's a huge party and it should be a party. It's a fantastic moment. If you ask somebody who's a pastor, how's your church going? Often they will say, well, we get this many people who are attending, but we've had this many baptisms over the last year. And it's a sign of the effectiveness of, of the church. Baptism, in some ways, for some people, is like, well, I, I'm going to baptize when I get 
kind of mature and I'm, I know I'm committed. So it's, it's the thing you work towards. It's the thing that you aim towards. I'm going to be baptized and then that's the sign. As if it's some sort of, the, sort of goal. But listen, it's not the goal. It's an initiation. It's the beginning. You ever been to a, like a race? Like a marathon or whatever? Been to some marathons at the beginning of the race? Everybody's all gathered around the start. Ready, set, go. And then they, they take off, they start running. And everyone screams, yay! See, they have initiated the race. But is that the goal of the race? I mean, seriously, if one guy took 10 steps, was like, whoa, I did it! Came over and hugged his parents and kissed his girlfriend. and was like, I'm so great. What would you do? You'd be like, dude, I don't think you understand the nature of the race. Well, right, baptism is the beginning, but then there's, there's something that follows this. The mission is not just getting people baptized. It is. You share the gospel with them. Jesus died for you. You are a sinner. He took on your sin. You can be righteous in him. His righteousness can be yours by faith. All you have to do is say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's it. And then go be baptized as a signal that you want to be in Christ. You identify with him. He, you're unified with him. But then that's just the beginning. What, what follows next? Well, the mission isn't just baptizing. It's going, baptizing, but it's also teaching. You saw that line. Teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Teaching them to obey everything I've committed. Listen, if I were going to teach you physics, <laughs> it would be a bad idea. You would fail physics not because uh, I my class was too hard, but because I don't know much about physics. Vectors. I only remember vectors. But if I were going to teach you a physics, and I and that what I do is get you in a classroom, and I convey a whole bunch of information to you about about it, and then at the end of the time, right at the end of the teaching, I would give you a test. And the test would be, can you regurgitate all the stuff that I taught you about physics on now a piece of paper? So, so the teaching of physics is largely an informational transfer event. Right? The, goal, the goal is not, man, I'm going to change your life with these vectors. The, the goal is to transfer the information about physics into, into you. And you're going to take a big test. Right, probably in a big gym somewhere with 1,500 other desks that are all spread out. And they'll give you the thing, don't, don't cheat. No use of phones, they'll say. I think that a lot of people think, okay, that's the goal of Christian teaching. Because what's going to happen is that I'm going to stand before God one day and I need to be able to answer the questions, right? So God's going to sit me down in a big gym, he, all this Pastors are transferring information to me and I'm going to sit down in a gym at the, you know, at the great judgment and God's going to have some questions. Like his first question is going to be something like, uh, uh, can you explain the Trinity? Uh, and, and then second, are you a Calvinist or Arminian? Because only one of you is getting in here, right? Uh, uh, defend your view about the Calvinist Arminian thing. Can, can you defend it in a thousand words or less? And I tell you, if there's a thousand and one, you're not, you're not coming. Uh, I think that we think that uh, the goal of Christian teaching is informational transfer that will be, that is necessary for us to 
be on God's good side or something to that effect. I hear that a lot from lots of different people. Maybe they don't say it outwardly, but that it certainly is the feeling I get. But, but listen, the teaching that we do in the Christian church is not for informational transfer so much as it's teaching for life change. I tell classes I teach that this class is doxological. What that means is I want you to glorify God not just with your words or your feelings, but with your life because of what you've learned about him in the class. I want to change your life. I want to appeal to your affections. I, I want you to know not just that God is grand, but he's grand for you. And that affects everything that you do, teaching you to obey, to love him so much that you obey everything that he commanded you. And this, this language of Christian obedience as the goal of our teaching is honestly throughout the Bible. Uh, Romans 1 verse 5 when Paul starts this grand book describing the great theology that he teaches in every one of these churches. He says through him we've received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to, notice the language, the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. It's not just teaching you about the faith. My goal, says Paul, is to bring about the obedience that comes from the faith that you've been taught. Matthew 7, 21, passage I, I cite regularly. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, says Jesus, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But listen, the only, but only the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven, the ones who obey. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out many demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I'll tell them plainly, look, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. See, the, the, the problem that they have is that they, not be, that they confessed something wrong, it's that they practiced something not in line with their profession. The goal of the Christian church and teaching, the, the part of the mission is to get you to obey Jesus, I want to see you live and die happy in Jesus. And so that requires an original commitment. But then it also requires continued obedience. It requires the start of the race and the continuing of the race until you die happy in Jesus. The test for your love for God, in fact, is how you and I act toward him. So... I want to teach you to obey all he's commanded. That's what I've tried to do over the last years here, is to teach you to obey all that he commanded you. And when I first came to Abbotsford, one of the things that I noticed initially was this is a place where lots and lots of people like to use Christian-y phrases and words and talk. I mean, it's still kind of, people call it the Bible Belt of Canada, which is, I think, a bit of a misnomer. But there's lots of people who've grown up in kind of Christian-y backgrounds and they show up and they say, yeah, I'm basically a Christian. I'm basically, God's on, on my, you know, I'm on God's good side because I basically do some good stuff and I'm, I'm a nice person and I certainly profess that I'm that. I come to church on Sundays at least once a month. But then they go out and they live their lives as people that have not experienced the grace of Christ. Whose lives have not been transformed by the gospel. And when I first came to Abbotsford, I noticed that. And that was the first thing that I actually identified and said, listen, if, if there's one thing that I want people to remember about my preaching here is I want to clarify that, 
clarify for them what the nature of saving faith is. And so you've heard me say, I don't know how many times, that the nature of saving faith is threefold. It is professed, meaning that you need to confess and believe and be baptized. It is practiced in the sense that it, it changes your life. You, you, your heart is toward God and submissive to him. Not perfectly so, but continually so. It's professed, it's practiced, and ultimately it's per persevering in both its profession and practice. That's the nature of saving faith. And if you look at your life and you say, well, I, I don't really practice. Man, I don't think you're Christian. Repent and believe the gospel. And then bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Let your faith grow and demonstrate itself in the way that you love others, the way that you talk the way that you treat the poor, the way that you go. It's a very key issue here, and I've tried to really emphasize it to you. Baptizing and teaching to obey all that I commanded you. All right, so you go, you baptize, and you teach. That all sounds very daunting, to be honest with you. So at the beginning of this passage, at the end... Jesus gives motivation. He gives support. He wants to explain to you, okay, here's how you can be successful in it and why you shouldn't be afraid of it. So the last one here is to have no fear, verse 18. And Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore... Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. All authority has been given to me. And surely I am with you always to the end of the age. There's a place in Bellingham uh, called Whatcom Falls where my kids over the years have loved jumping off of a cliff. The cliff is probably 35 feet high. When we go down there you have to climb in through the park and eventually you get there's a lot of people around. Uh, in order to jump though it, off this cliff the, the cliff starts and then it kind of there's a below is sort of a bulge. <laughs> so you have to kind of jump out and it feels like you're going to hit this bulge. You're not. It's just kind of an optical illusion. You're not going to hit it. But it looks like you will. So my kids have always said to me, they, they jump off without any trouble, but my kids are always asking me, Dad, why, why aren't you? Come on, Dad, you come and jump and stuff. And I've gone up to the top of the thing and I've looked over and said, there's no way I'm jumping down there. And, and they're like, why not? It's, you know, safe. Look at all the people who've done it for you and stuff. But you know what? The reason I'm, because I do a cost-benefit analysis in my head. And I think to myself, right, what is there to gain here? Like, I'm going to go and take this great risk, jump off this cliff, and I'm going to, what? Yay! Hit the water, be thankful that I didn't die. That's not worth the danger, the possibility that, of what could go wrong. Yeah, I slip at the top. Dude, I've seen those stupid fail videos. I could slip at the top, fall over, hit my head, die. Knowing me, I'd, I'd hit the water and go straight, sink to the bottom and hit my head on the bottom. Yeah, but it's really deep there. I, 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 is it that deep? 
You're like 120 pounds. I'm four of you. Just kidding. So I don't go. I don't go largely because I'm afraid and I'm unsure of the cost. I think the reason that we don't go, that when we read a passage like this, sorry, go, baptizing, teaching, making disciples that way, I think one of the reasons that we don't go is because um, we're afraid. First of all, we think, like, is this really going to work? Like, because every time I've ever tried to go, it's kind of turned out like my trip to the hay. <laughs> you know, people look at you like you're weird, might feel like it's going to ruin a relationship if I, if I go and I represent Christ in a significant way there and even use, use my words to, to talk about the good news. And the cost is high. Like, if I'm really going to go, and I'm really going to say to all nations, but I, could, I could lose my friends. I could be, have to be gone for a long period of time away from the people I grew up with and my family. It's, I'm not, it's money. Like, how am I going to live? Well, how am I going to have my insurance? What about safety? Is the places that, that we're going or places that, you know, I, my family's going to be safe? I'm going to be safe? I mean, you tell stories about a guy lining everybody up and talking about them, talking to their family like he's going to die on the next trip. That's, that's a... Cost-benefit analysis tells you that you don't do that. It's not worth it. So Jesus deals with the fear, though, doesn't he? With those two statements. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. That heaven and earth is what we call a merism. It's like all authority everywhere. Do you know of a where? God has, Jesus has authority there. In the unseen realm, heaven, and in the seen realm, earth. He, he has authority in all of it, over principalities and powers, over demons, over Satan, over people, over rocks, over dogs. Jesus has authority over all of it in heaven and earth. It's been given to him, resurrected by the Father, handed to him. All his enemies are a footstool for his feet, it says in Psalm 110. And he says, look, I have all that authority. So you should have courage. And listen, there are barriers. You know this. There are huge barriers. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Um, Paul basically says that unbelief is, you know, when he goes and he preaches the gospel to different places, he goes into the, to, out in the world and he, everywhere he preaches the gospel, there's a lot of unbelief and people, people don't listen to the gospel. They don't buy it. He's trying to explain why that is. And he, he identifies Satan as the reason that these people aren't believing. He says, the God of this age, verse 4, 2 Corinthians 4, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, the reason that no, they're not believing is because there is a, 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 an unearthly power that is prohibiting it. And I read that and I think, like, how am I going to overcome that? You tell me to go out and preach and he's I'm going up against Satan? Really? But two verses later, Paul says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory, God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. You hear the, the saint, God, God's the God who says, Light, light shine out of darkness. Yeah, Satan's causing darkness and blindness, but isn't God the one who calls planets into being? Isn't he the one who gives light and he strikes that light right into darkness? Isn't he the one who has the power to do it? 
Well, yeah, in Acts chapter 16, Paul goes to a, a river and he's trying to preach the gospel to a bunch of people there he's never seen before. Some, some, some are Jewish, some are what they call God-fearers. Gentiles are kind of interested in the Jewish faith. Acts 16 verse 13, on the Sabbath we went outside the gate, city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. And one of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira. She's a rich lady named Lydia. She was a dealer in purple cloth, right? Hoity toity. Expensive, well uh, educated woman in those days. Absolutely. She was a worshiper of God. She was a Gentile who was kind of the edge of the Jewish faith. And the Lord, the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Yeah, you're going to go up against Satan, but I have the authority, says Jesus. Man, you've seen this in the, you know, in the cultural revolution in the 1960s in China, they kicked all the foreigners out of the country. And most people who saw that happen were thinking it was in favor of the communist regime. And most people who saw that happen were like, man, Christianity is going to die in China in the next five years, mid-60s. They thought by 70, 1971, 72, that it would be over. The Christians were dying. Missionaries were gone. If they found out you were a Christian, they'd kill you. There's no hope for it. And then this long, dark period where there just wasn't a lot of information coming out of China until, of course, there was a little bit of opening and they, they got involved in the world stage a little bit more and all of a sudden, Westerners started going back into China. You know what they found? Christians. All over the place. You know, the, the largest population of Christians in the world live in China. The largest church in the world lives in, lives in China. Because Jesus has authority and he has power. And the, the, the kings of the earth can say, you're not doing this. And Jesus is like, watch me. You know, when I was, I was a younger guy, I used to always listen to that verse that says, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. I used to think, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah Satan's attacking us and we will, we'll be able to stand, right? Which is, is true. But I, never, I just never connected with me until I, I went to seminary that the language actually is the, the gates of hell won't prevail against the church. The church isn't on the defensive in that passage. It's on the offensive. Hell itself will be overrun with the authority of God through his people in the church. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So go. He also gives this encouragement at the end. So all authority in heaven and on earth. And then he gives the, the mission. And then at the end he says, but I'm with you always to the very end of the age. When he used to, my son played on these little, these baseball teams. We'd, we'd have to go to the island and we'd have to, um, you know, go and sit in the white spot and eat the food. And there was a big lineup when everybody gets on the, the ferry in the morning. And there were different baseball teams that were there. And it was always funny to watch these different baseball teams because they would all hang out together, right? This 15 guys all standing in there and their chests were pumped out like this and they'd be walking down. They're standing in line together, staring each other down. We're going to beat you. Look how great we are. Look at my muscles, whatever. Kind of chippy, chesty. 
They'd walk around the ship in these big groups, pushing their way through the crowds, gathering up a whole bunch of seats, you know. Can I heave that seat? No, we're using it. And there's 10 of them there, okay. A little later on the trip, sometimes you'd find one or two of those players who would be separated from their large group, though. And man, the difference between the kid when he was with his large group and how chesty and, and, and bold he was and when he was alone, hey, can I sit next to you? Um, um, uh, I'll just get up and go. And you can have my seat. It's just totally different. Yeah, of course it is. When you are accompanied by your boys, when you're accompanied by backup, you can be as bold as you want. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Listen, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be with you. But look, it's not just presence, though, that, that you need. You need both. You need the presence that's mentioned at the end here, right? I'll be with you till the end of the age and the power that's mentioned before all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You, look, if, if there's no authority, the presence is meaningless. If, look, if I'm going to a dark, dangerous area of the city and I have Leland Clawson with me, you know, big spindly guy, right, could be blown over by, by a hard wind. Man, I don't know if I'm going to be as chesty with everybody, but if I have Nate Bosch with me, if you know Nate, he's just a big dude, really big dude. I'm going to be far more bold. And the difference is that one of them has power and the other one just doesn't. Jesus has power. He has authority and he gives his presence. So what do, what do we do with that? Well, we have to ask ourselves questions like, why would I ever shrink back? Why would I ever hesitate? Like, what, what am I going to lose at the end? The cost-benefit analysis, man, it, what, what is the cost? Well, Jesus is, is the greatest thing anywhere, and he says that if you give up things for me, I will replace them. Fathers and mothers and sons and daughters will be given to you, he says. I mean, like, there's no cost in it. Yeah, there's a cost. But really, no, the benefit you get. So let me finish with this, okay? There's a little word here that um, most of us run over here. It's the word that's translated surely here. Surely I'm with you always to the end of the age. The actual word is behold. Right? You know, like, behold, there's an angel. Behold, the sky is opening. Behold, the Lord is separating the waters. It's a word that's used all over the Bible to try to get you to... Notice, look, behold. And the, here's the thing. You can only behold something if you're in a situation in which you can behold it. And that sounds silly. You cannot, in other words, behold something if you're not in the location and in the situation where the beholding is possible. You have to be on the scene in the moment to behold it. If you wanted to behold Peter walking on water, or if you as Peter wanted to behold the power of God as you were walking on top of the water, you had to get out of the boat. So here's what I think is being said here. The only way to experience and see the presence and power of Jesus coming through for you is if you get out of the boat, is if you are in a position to behold it. 
In other words, the Lord Jesus is calling you and me to go and baptize and teach to obey. And he's saying, when you do, you will see my power, my authority, and you'll experience my presence with you in a way that you could never see or experience otherwise. God has come through for me and my wife and my family everywhere we've ever gone for the sake of Christ. I went to New Zealand and he gave me brothers and sisters and family. Even though we left family behind, people who will forever be some of the most important people in my life. And we gave up all of that to come to Abbotsford, British Columbia to work at Northview Community Church, a ministry I didn't think I was going to be part of for a long time. But here I am 15 years later, a couple years as a young adults pastor and 13 as the lead pastor. And I can tell you that God has been faithful to me and to my family. Many of you are our brothers and sisters, our moms and dads, our kids' grandparents. There's never been a sacrifice that my wife and I have ever made that has not been returned to us hundreds of folds by God for whom we made the sacrifice. So I go to Chicago. I'm a little freaked out by all that's going to happen there. I don't really know a whole lot of people there, but here's what I know. I will see, I will behold the presence and power of Jesus there as I have here as I did before. And all I want you to do is join me. Not not necessarily in Chicago, that'd be great. I want you to join me in this community. I want you to join me in the next community. And perhaps around the world until he comes, till the end of the age. Being the pastor of Northview Community Church has been one of the greatest joys of my life and it will forever be so. God bless you, but let's go until he comes. Let me pray. Father, I'm thankful for your grace and for my friends and for your faithfulness and power. Would you help us to see it as we risk everything for you in Jesus' name? Amen.